Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesmer, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort, a partnership between the Gastric Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care. And we're delighted to be partnering with them on this program, and we'll be partnering with them into the future on all of our future um, gastric cancer programs. And uh, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Taiho Oncology, Inc., and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have many speakers, many participants, first of all, on the call today. We also have many speakers, but we have many participants. We have over 215 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Kazakhstan, Netherlands, Oman, Pakistan, Poland, South Africa, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and um, we're really, um, really delighted um, to, um, to have so many of you on the call today, both from the United States and also um, some international participants as well. Now, before we actually begin um, introducing our first speaker, um, I would like to um, ask you just a few questions before we start. It helps us in our planning future programs. And um, so I'm going to start with the first question. And so on a scale of one, on one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand new treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatments for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating five the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand the role of precision medicine in predicting response to treatment for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the third question is, I know the importance of clinical trials for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how to control treatment side effects, symptoms, and pain for gastric cancer in the context of COVID-19. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. Um, I know the role of the standard of care, including chemotherapy for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in this, these questions. It really helps us to get a sense of what you know as you start the program. So thank you very much um, for doing this and working with us on that um, so we can make these programs better and to better meet your needs. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. And Dr. Koo is medical oncologist, head of esophagastric section Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Kuhl will be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, including diagnosis and staging in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care, including chemotherapy, new treatment approaches, and the role of targeted treatment, precision medicine, predicting response to treatment, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. 
It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Koo. Carolyn, thanks so much for the introduction, and really it's, it's always a pleasure to do this every year. Um, so the first question is actually a really interesting question. How has COVID-19 changed things? And I guess the answer, depending on where one is um, uh, in the world, but even in the U.S., is that uh, everything has changed or nothing has changed. Uh, certainly, I think if, if I had been asked this question a year ago, um, I would have told you that at Momorosal and Kettering, um, you know, most, many outpatient chemotherapy treatments had stopped. All but the most critical cancer surgeries were canceled, uh, and we really were hunkering down. I think, thankfully, a year on, the situation is significantly better. Um, I think virtually everyone in the hospital who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated. Uh, increasingly, many of our patients have, have, have been vaccinated. Uh, and actually, I just, I, I, someone just sent me a, a tweet saying that, um, uh, that as, as of April 6th, anyone in New York uh, who wants to be vaccinated you know, will be able to get the vaccine. So essentially, I, I do think that once, um, you know, once uh, all of us are vaccinated, uh, it really will hopefully bring things back to normal. Uh, but for now, I would say that there's a strong sense of normalcy. I think in most hospitals um, in the U.S., because healthcare providers have already been vaccinated, uh, so at least I think there is, there is reassurance that patients you know, will not get COVID uh, from coming to a healthcare facility. So certainly, I think my answer to, to, to you know, how we diagnose and stage um, stomach cancer um, in the context of COVID-19 is that it's really business as usual. Uh, and, and certainly, I think if, if there's anyone on the call um, uh, you know, who themselves or a family member or a friend uh, is having symptoms or is undergoing treatment, uh, I would like to provide reassurance that I think, you know, the treatments and the evaluations are all being done very safely within the hospital now, uh, thankfully because of the relatively rapid deployment of the vaccines. So having said that, I think, you know, with regards to diagnosis, I think one of the difficulties about, of, of gastric cancer, at least in the U.S. and in the West, is that it's a relatively rare cancer. Um, in East Asia, in Japan and Korea, there actually are screen national screening programs for stomach cancer, just as there is screening for breast cancer, for, for colon cancer, uh, for cervical cancer, you know, in many other places in the world. But certainly in the U.S., there is not screening uh, because stomach cancer is relatively uncommon. Uh, and at the same time, the, the symptoms are, are relatively difficult to spot. I mean, certainly, you know, many people are, are you know, are more likely to have, you know, mild reflux. Um, or, or gastritis or stomach flu or any number of things other than stomach cancer. So one of the challenges is that certainly the symptoms can last for um, you know, several weeks to several months uh, before they come to the attention of, of you know, the patient themselves um, and, and their physician. And then normally most people will start off with their primary care physician. So you know, in, terms of, in terms of diagnosis, certainly you know, the most important way to make the diagnosis ultimately is with an endoscopy, you know, which is essentially uh, a tube with a camera that goes into the stomach um, you look, well, essentially, you look at the entire esophagus and the stomach, and are there any abnormalities that can be biopsied? Um, but in addition to that, frequently we would include a CAT scan um, for staging of tumors that have, that have not spread. We would also include a PET scan, uh, and certainly we would also get routine blood work just to make sure someone is not anemic uh, and that their kidney and liver function is okay. So in terms of the, you know, the next topic, which is, you know, the standard of care, so the way we treat stomach cancer is, you know, um, definitely divided into whether the cancer has spread or not. And in the U.S., you know, about half of patients are diagnosed um, where the cancer has not spread, and half of patients are diagnosed with metastatic disease where the cancer has spread somewhere. So, you know, for, for tumors that have not spread, or what we call localized or locally advanced tumors, uh, the treatment uh, would either be surgery alone for a tumor that's very, very small, um, where we don't think the lymph nodes are involved, but for a tumor that is um, more locally advanced, where the tumor is quite big, and where we think the lymph nodes nearby are involved, uh, the, the standard of care for most institutions would be to give chemotherapy before and after surgery. One thing I would quickly add, kind of coming back to the issue of, of, of staging. So um, it's important to accurately stage uh, a locally advanced gastric cancer. And, and for us and, and many other institutions, that staging, uh, as I mentioned, does include a PET scan it also includes what's called a diagnostic laparoscopy, where the, where the surgeon makes small incisions in the abdomen. Uh, we put a camera in there. We look around uh, to see whether there are tumors on the lining of the abdomen. The surgeon will also frequently put saline or salt water into the abdomen, and we kind of suck the salt water, the saline back out, and look at it under the microscope to make sure that there are no cancer cells. This is a really important test because about 10 or 15% of the time, even when PET scans look okay, uh, the cancer cells can have spread 
Uh, and, and knowing that the cancer cell spreads, you know, it certainly greatly changes the treatment uh, and potentially the prognosis as well. Uh, but, but anyway, for a, for a locally advanced gastric cancer, the treatment really would be chemotherapy before and after surgery. Uh, for gastric cancers that have metastasized or that have spread to another organ at the time of diagnosis or that come back after surgery and chemotherapy, uh, then the main treatment really is, um, is chemotherapy alone. Um, for, for many, many years, the treatment really was chemotherapy alone. Um, um, but that's certainly evolving. Um, so, uh, first of all, in, in terms of the current standard of care, uh, about 20 to 25% of stomach cancers have a protein called HER2, HEN number 2, uh, on them. And if the HER2 is present, um, it would be standard to add a medication called trastuzumab or Herceptin to the chemotherapy. The trastuzumab essentially blocks the HER2, which is something the cancer cells need to grow. Uh, and the trastuzumab plus chemotherapy you know, is an effective combination and has been the standard for, for more than a decade at this point. Um, this, I guess, next treatment option kind of ties in with new treatment approaches, uh, but immunotherapy really is um, um, continuing to make significant inroads in the treatment of stomach cancer. Uh, about four years ago, it really was approved on its own, and it was approved uh, for people where the cancer had come back and, and after two other chemotherapy treatments had, had not worked. Um, but um, about a week ago, uh, there was approval of an immunotherapy drug called pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy. And while it was primarily for esophageal cancer, uh, it does also include tumors that are at the GE junction or gastroesophageal junction, and that's the junction between the, the esophagus and the stomach. So, so we sometimes don't differentiate very cl clearly between GE junction and stomach cancers. So for patients with, with, with you know, cancers that are at the junction between the esophagus and the stomach, um, uh, you know, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy is now an option. I think many people are familiar with immunotherapy, but the basic idea behind these medications is that they stimulate the immune system so that the immune system wakes up and is able to attack the cancer cells. And again, like I said, about four years ago, it really was approved or validated to be given only on its own, uh, but we now know that, that, it, that it works in combination with, with chemotherapy. So in addition to this study that I mentioned, this Keynote 590 study, there's another study that was also presented at the same time called Checkmate 649. And this is a study that focused purely on, on cancers of the stomach as well as the GE junction. And this study also showed overall that there was a benefit to adding a different immunotherapy drug, a drug called nivolumab, to chemotherapy as well. So, so the combination of nivolumab with chemotherapy actually has been endorsed uh, by the NCCN. The NCCN is a network of, of, uh, of cancer hospitals throughout the U.S. And uh, recommendations or, or, or you know, recommendations made by the NCCN are typically supported by insurance. So it's also you know, important to know that for some patients with, with stomach cancer, immunotherapy plus chemotherapy is now a, a, um, an option as well. Um, this particular combination of nivolumab plus chemotherapy is actually still being evaluated by the FDA. Uh, and and eventually, I think the FDA could you know, rule on this any day now, uh, but potentially based on the FDA approval, it could be further expanded so that everyone with stomach cancer or everyone with metastatic stomach cancer would be eligible to receive nivolumab with, uh, with chemotherapy. So, so, you know, kind of talking about targeted approaches, I think, you know, immunotherapy certainly, um, I think, is a major component of, of, of newer treatments. It's a major component of ongoing research to try to improve outcomes for patients with stomach cancer. Uh, the, uh, the two other targeted therapies that, that, that are that, that uh, warrant um, discussion is trastuzumab, which I mentioned is a medication that blocks HER2, which again is present in about 20% of stomach cancer cells, uh, and that's, uh, that's been approved for about 10 years now. Uh, the other targeted therapy are, 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 are treatments that block blood vessels, um, what we call anti-angiogenic treatment. And the idea behind blocking blood vessels is that we block the small blood vessels or blood supply to the cancer cells and we're able to starve the cancer cells of oxygen and nutrients. So there's a drug called remisirumab, which blocks blood vessels, uh, which has been approved in combination with chemotherapy. Uh, and that's, that, for about five or six years now, is what we call the standard second-line treatment, meaning that if someone receives a first chemotherapy option for metastatic stomach cancer, uh, if at some point that stops working, then remisirumab with another chemotherapy drug has been the standard for about five, five or six years. So I think in totality, when it comes to targeted therapy, uh, immunotherapy certainly you know, has made significant inroads and is beginning to have you know, substantial impact, especially because we're, we're combining it with, um, with, with chemo. 
Um, um, HER2 therapy has been around for a long time. There actually are a lot of new and exciting HER2 treatments uh, that are just around the corner. Uh, in fact, there was a drug called trastuzumab deruxtecan that was approved about uh, two months ago uh, for patients who, where, the, where the cancer has grown on, on the trastuzumab. Uh, and then finally, like I said, um, blood vessel blocking treatments are also something that have been around for several years. Um, I think in terms of, you know, in terms of um, kind of new treatment approaches, uh, I, I think uh, what the one treatment approach that I would mention is that there, is, there are studies that are looking at combining immunotherapy uh, with chemotherapy before and after surgery uh, for patients who have localized stomach cancers that can be cured. So in other words, uh, the hope now is that we can further enhance the cure rate by adding chemotherapy to immunotherapy uh, before surgery. Um, some of these studies probably won't be reported for another one or two years, but I think we're hopeful that given the fact that immunotherapy plus chemotherapy works when the cancer is metastasized, uh, we're hoping that by using immunotherapy earlier on um, in the curative setting, uh, that potentially we can, we can increase the, the chance of cure. Um, the, uh, so related to a lot of what I talked about is the question of how do we figure out you know, who should get immunotherapy? Um, how do we figure out who should get trastuzumab? So that really, re that really relates to kind of a broad topic called precision medicine. So broadly speaking, the idea behind precision medicine is that we can kind of study you know, each patient's tumor and we can know so much about the tumor cells that we come up with treatments that are individualized for each person. And I think, unfortunately, the broad aim is, is still a little bit in the realm of science fiction, but we are making a little bit of inroads in terms of trying to figure out, you know, slightly, slightly more individualized treatments for each person. So, as I mentioned, 20% of stomach cancer cells are HER2 positive. And if they're HER2 positive, then adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy for metastatic cancers is an option. So, Certainly one test that needs to be done on the tumor cells is to look for the HER2 protein, and that's a very straightforward test that normally takes you know, a couple of days to report. Um, with regards to, to immunotherapy, there are two other tests that are, that are important. Uh, one is called PDL1. PDL1 is a protein that's present also to varying degrees and with kind of different um, strengths or in, and intensities on stomach cancer cells. And the bottom line is that when the PDL1 protein is present, patients are more likely to respond to immunotherapy. So certainly uh, an, an important test to obtain would be to know the PDL1 status of the tumor cells as we plan for treatment. Closely, somewhat related to PDL1 is, is another set of proteins called MMR or mismatch repair protein. And mismatch repair proteins, um, um, whether they are, they are absent or present, uh, strongly affects whether uh, a cancer cell is likely to respond to immunotherapy or not. And actually, in this case, we actually want the mismatch repair proteins to be absent. So when, 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 we, when, the, when they're not found in the cancer cells, uh, that cancer is known as a mismatch repair protein deficient cancer. Uh, another synonym is a microsatellite unstable cancer. These are really rare cancers. So for patients with metastatic gastric cancer, they comprise only about 3 to 4% of cancers. Uh, but they have very, very strong benefit. Um, there is about a 50% chance of major shrinkage with immunotherapy, uh, and some of the shrinkage is actually durable, uh, meaning that there is the potential of curing some of these patients um, uh, with immunotherapy alone, even when the cancer is metastasized. So, so the kind of three standard tests that, that we would do would be for HER2, for PDL1, and mismatch repair protein. Now, I would emphasize that for now, these proteins or these results really only have implications for patients with metastatic disease. Uh, for someone who has a localized tumor that's curable, for the most part, um, there, there's really not an implication to, to, to getting these results. Um, the last part of precision medicine um, is um, what's called um, next-generation sequencing, uh, where, um, where you can actually look at genes within the cancer cells to try to identify additional treatment options. Um, this is something that's routinely done as well and certainly can be an option. Um, I realize I'm running over time, so the last thing I'll talk about is telehealth and telemedicine. So certainly I think, you know, I think from my perspective, one of the only good things that have come out of COVID is that it's really accelerated the use of telemedicine, um, you know, in all fields in, in medicine, and there clearly are benefits to that. So, you know, for us at, at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, it allows us to offer many more second opinions to people who live far away. Um, you know, as, as Carolyn knows, you know, living in Manhattan, traveling in and out of the city is, is, is not easy. So we have patients who live on Long Island and Westchester and New Jersey, uh, many of whom I, I now see on telehealth. They receive their treatments locally. 
uh, and potentially we meet up every two to three months, you know, around the time of scan reviews or things like that. So I, I think certainly, you know, there are very good things about telemedicine, but at the same time, I think we all also understand from, you know, millions of Zoom calls that there's sometimes no substitute for seeing someone face to face. Um, so, 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 you know, I think there is a role for telemedicine, but at the same time, I think it still is important uh, to, to, to physically meet, um, you know, for, for patients and physicians to meet one on one, potentially at the time of scan reviews, uh, especially if, the, if there's any concern about symptoms. Uh, but, but certainly, I think telemedicine is here to stay, and, and I think for many people, uh, it offers you know benefits and, and advantages. So, I apologize for going a little bit over, but I'll, but I'll stop at this point. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. That was really outstanding and a wonderful setting the stage for the program today. So, um, and uh, certainly um, just uh, you covered a lot. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much, Dr. Ku. And our next speaker is Dr. Mohamed Bassam Sanbal. And Dr. Sanbal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, Senior Associate Consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology, Gastrointestinal Cancer Program, Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, Arizona. And Dr. Sanbal will be addressing the role of clinical trials in the context of COVID-19, how research contributes to treatment options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, the importance of communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and making your list of questions. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sanbal. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and thank you, everyone, for joining in. Um, so as you really heard from Dr. Ku, the standard of care uh, for treatment of uh, advanced or metastatic gastric cancer is the, really the combination of chemotherapy as a backbone, and in some patients, as you heard, with precision medicine, depending on what we call the biomarker or those changes that Dr. Ku described nicely, um, adding immunotherapy in some patients or targeted therapy with uh, medications such as ramisurumab, which works on the blood vessels of the tumor, or uh, for patients who have the HER2 uh, target, we add uh, trastuzumab uh, uh, as a drug. Now, the ultimate goal behind developing any new drug is really with achieving cure in this cancer and other cancers. That's really the ultimate goal at the, uh, in the future, hopefully. Um, everything that has been discussed today with all the medications that you've uh, heard about and all, all the things that we've achieved so far is really as part of the clinical trial. So what does a clinical trial mean? Um, now, any new drug that is being developed uh, it starts with, with the research that comes in from the lab asking questions that have some scientific background and initially testing some drugs in test tubes in animals. And then if we see some promise in these drugs, we take these drugs to what we call as a phase one study. Now, the goal of the phase one study is to assess whether this new drug is safe in humans and what the side effects are. Uh, in addition, we're looking at a signal of uh, efficacy, which means whether the drug is effective or not in shrinking the cancer. Um, and uh, then uh, that comes into what we call a phase two. A phase two study is really we're expanding on a phase one, and that's where we assess the effectiveness, uh, whether the drug is working or not. And if there is a promise, then we take the drug to what we call a phase three. Now, the phase three is uh, kind of the most important uh, part of, of studying any drug. This is when we compare the new drug with the standard of care. So in most circumstances, we have two groups of patients. One group get the standard of care, and the other group get the new drug. And we look at whether these patients uh, who get the new drug, whether they have more sh cancer shrinkage, and whether they live longer or not. And we attempt to change the standard of care and build on what we know. So each of these drugs uh, discussed today that Dr. Ku mentioned uh, really uh, got here because of uh, clinical trials and because of patients who participated in clinical trials. So it's really because of altruism of those patients. Now, although we hope that every clinical trial we start uh, with end up being positive, however, some of these clinical trials end up being what we call negative, which means that either the drug is not effective or there are too many side effects there. So this is not necessarily a bad thing. We learn really from the bad from from that information, and also we 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 learn from 
from the, the positive trials as well. So we optimize a future treatments. We learn to develop uh, better drugs. Uh, and we tackle the disease differently from different angles based on what we learn from the clinical trials. So in a nutshell, we really learn from the positive and the negative. Now, so as you can hear, I mean, it's really uh, the, the research is a, is a, is a key uh, element in, in all what we have so far and all what we will develop in the future. So it's, it's really important to lead the, the progress to hopefully cure uh, this disease uh, in the majority of the patients in the future. Now, in the COVID world, of course, uh, clinical, clinical trials still as important as they were before. Nothing really changed in, in terms of the importance. However, lots have changed in terms of the logistics and really mainly to ensure the safety of patients. Uh, now, both patients and doctors, especially at the beginning of the pandemics, were concerned about uh, being enrolled in clinical trials uh, initially. For example, there was a survey in May or June uh, 2020 where almost 1,000 of patients were asked about their willingness to participate in clinical trials. One out of, one out of five patients indicated that because of COVID-19, uh, they were not going to uh, participate just out of concern of exposure. Now, uh, of course, as you heard from Dr. Ku, since then, really lots of things have changed in the logistics to ensure better safety for patients. For example, a good portion of clinical trials are, uh, as you know, in, in, in big cancer centers and in larger cities that need traveling. So many cancer centers are now offering virtual visits, including, as you heard, I mean, Sloan Kettering and, and our cancer center, Mayo Clinic. Uh, we offer second opinions uh, uh, for, for patients to kind of look at the availability of such trials before traveling, or even patients who are already enrolled in clinical trials many studies are now uh, allowing patients to skip some of the visits and make it as, uh, as virtual instead of face-to-face. -face. Uh, now, of course, there, there are variabilities between studies and cancer centers. It's always important uh, to, to check with the, with the study team regarding that. So it's really, we had to create the f f flexibility and we had to be creative uh, to, to ensure the safety of, of patients. Um, now, of course, uh, I said there are there are variabilities, and it's always important to ask your your doctor and ask the study team. Uh, for example, most of the studies allow vaccination now, but again, need to check with the team about the timing, about uh, the specific drugs they're using. Um, now that gets to the vaccination in regards to the, the chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Lots of patients now asking, you know, I have cancer, I'm on immunotherapy or I'm chemotherapy. Should I get the vaccination or not? In general, we recommend vaccination regardless whether patients on immunotherapy or chemotherapy, but uh, always check with your doctor. And the only thing I tell patients regarding the timing is, for example, if I'm starting a patient on, on chemotherapy and they tell me that they're getting vaccination today, for example, I just give them a few days before starting chemotherapy just to recover from any symptoms that they may have uh, from, from the vaccination. So, uh, of course, part of, part of, I mean, big part of, of treating the, the cancer in general is, is really taking care of uh, uh, the, the, the symptoms that the patients have. It's, it's one of the key uh, elements in, in controlling the, the disease and controlling the symptoms and making uh, the, the patient uh, feel better and to tolerate treatments with, uh, with, with any symptoms that arise, whether the, the, those symptoms are from the disease or the side effects of any therapy we use. Lots of times you hear the doctors saying that uh, at the initial visit, and I tell patients uh, this a lot of times, you know, I tell them that you'll probably feel better after starting chemotherapy. And although that sounds strange at the beginning or surprising to some patients, but it is true because many of the symptoms that patients have initially are really driven by the cancer itself. So when we control the cancer and, and try to shrink the cancer, many of these symptoms get better. For example, because of the location of the gastric tumors or uh, stomach tumors as, part, uh, as the port of the entry to the uh, digestive tract, obstruction can happen. And depending on the site of the tumor, uh, this can lead to problems in passing food and lead to nausea or vomiting or weight loss. Now, thankfully, we have multiple options uh, to help with that, like uh, going down with a scope with our colleagues with gastroenterology and open up uh, the narrowing or the obstruction and place what we call a stent to open things up. 
or even in some circumstances, uh, we put a feeding tube to allow to deliver nutrients or relieve obstruction. The feeding tube is usually the rarity. Most patients, we can uh, we can help with nutrition uh, in in uh, different ways other than the feeding tube. Although the nausea medication, also also the the other uh, symptoms that is uh, that patients hear about is is the nausea. Now the nausea medications that we have now much better than before. So the advances the advancement that we had and you heard about from Dr. Ku are not only to tr uh, advancement in, in treating cancer itself, but also for supportive care medications, whether pills or intravenous medications. The bleeding can also happen, and uh, just because of the location uh, of the tumor in the stomach, that can happen, and we can control that usually with an endoscope, whether to burn the tumor or surgery sometimes. Also, in addition to that, um, Nutrition is a key element, and you'll hear uh, uh, about that uh, in a few minutes as well in, in more details, but that's a very important uh, element, and the nutritionist role is, is a huge role in, in treating this disease and, and taking care of patients. Uh, pain is another symptom that can happen from the cancer itself, and we take that very seriously, and we, we work closely with our palliative care doctors, or what I like to call them, the supportive care doctors, their group of doctors and nurses, they're there to help with nausea, pain, um, and we have also very effective pain medications that can make uh, the patient, you know, comfortable while they can do their own, you know, they, they live their life while they are taking their pain medications to take care of any pain. And lots of times after we start the chemotherapy or the immunotherapy or treating the cancer, some of the pain actually get relieved just by the treatment itself. So a lot of these symptoms that arise, uh, they arise as the result of the cancer itself, or some of the symptoms can come in from the, as a side effect of the chemotherapy or immunotherapy, such as diarrhea or neuropathy. Where the neuropathy is really can vary from tingling sensation uh, in the fingers or toes to, uh, to, to other forms of, of neuropathy that can interrupt with the daily function. However, it, it's really a, a balance that you and your doctor have to work on uh, together to achieve to maximize the benefits and, and minimize the side effects. So as you can, I mean, here, uh, all of these elements require very good communication between you and your uh, health team to achieve the best results possible, as the care now requires what we call multidisciplinary uh, approach, so multiple doctors are involved. So communication is very important between the teams uh, on one end and between you as a patient and the other team members as well at the other end. And I always tell patients and remind them, and this is very important, if your doctor does not hear from you or get any message from you, they assume that everything is going well. Therefore, it's very important if you have any issue or concern to let the team know what's going on and so that they can act on it. As I mentioned, for example, your oncologist might consult with other team members to further support you at best, such as palliative care, pain medicine team, social worker, nutritionist, all of these consults uh, and communications are triggered by a communication or a message between you and your healthcare team regarding uh, any symptoms and, and, and concerns. Now, some of the things I know, I, I mentioned a little bit about uh, COVID and the changes, and you heard some from Dr. Ku, uh, but I, I just want to mention more that about the, you know, some of the tips and things that we we uh, we have now regarding COVID and telehealth and uh, telemedicine. Um, I mean, many of the visits uh, are switched now to to virtual visits, whether phone visits or videos. Then those types of visits have great advantage. Uh, however, they do have their own disadvantages sometimes. Now, some of the the advantages that we discussed is to facilitate some of the care that we help with avoiding travel and exposures to, you know, infections and, and, uh, and other things. At the same time, I think there are a few things you should consider when, when you're scheduled for a virtual visit. First of all, I think ask yourself, is the visit appropriate to be virtual? For example, if you have a new symptom that, are, new, new symptom that is concerning, probably a face-to-face -face visit is more appropriate as you might need to be examined by your healthcare professional. So communication is important. If the visit is appropriate, then I think it's important to be prepared. The environment you're in is, is very important. 
there should be an environment with good internet coverage, uh, quiet enough that you can hear your doctor and they can hear you. Uh, for example, it's not advisable to call from a car or while driving. Also, at the beginning of the visit, it's a good idea always to introduce uh, who you have with you in the room during the visit, as the doctor, as you know, might not be able to see that other person. Um, so it's really as if you are in, in the clinic with, with a face-to-face -face visit. And it's always good to be prepared with a list of questions or things you want to discuss with the doctor to get the maximum benefit from the visit. Now, of course, it's always important to be on time for the visit. And with that, and for me to try to almost finish my presentation on time, I conclude my part, and I thank you very much for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sonball. That was really excellent and, uh, you know, very comprehensive. It covered a lot of topics, and I know there will be questions for you um, during the Q&A. And uh, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burton. And Ms. Ms. Diana, Ms. Burton is a, an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burton. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Well, nutrition and hydration are essential um, in your tolerance to treatment and your quality of life. Um, throughout your treatment, your diet may be modified um, just based on your unique response to treatment um, to help manage those side effects um, to make sure that you're getting that optimal nutrition in. Some possible side effects you can experience um, or that you may experience that can interfere with your intake are a decrease in appetite, um, maybe some reflux or indigestion, Filling full quickly, nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, and sometimes weight loss. <clears throat> the dietitian is part of your healthcare team, and that person can provide you, you know, information on your individual calorie and protein needs, along with your fluid needs. Um, during your treatment, you know, remember it's individualized. So, although you may know somebody who <clears throat> had a similar cancer. Um, their treatment bait may have varied a little bit, and so please reach out to your healthcare team for guidance on your healthcare needs with your treatment plan. Um, the dietitian can be a person who can also help with modifying your diet. It can, you know, include modifying the texture of the diet, modifying um, <clears throat> the foods that may best uh, be tolerated by you. Um, it can even be changing the amount of food that you eat at each session and increasing the frequency of your meals. Um, so, again, communicating with your healthcare team is so important. Um, we don't know what we don't know. And so, although we have an idea of the typical side effects through treatment, each person has their own unique response to treatment. And so, please keep your team abreast. There's no comment that, you know, may seem insignificant. There's nothing too insignificant to mention to your healthcare team. Um, that's the best way we can work together to help support you, and that's what we're there for. So one thing I hear a lot from patients is they may come in and may consider themselves overweight or that they have weight to lose. And we know that weight loss during cancer treatment needs to be very well monitored and controlled. Um, whenever you're losing weight during your treatment, um, usually what we see is more of a loss from the lean muscle mass than fat mass. And with that loss can come increased weakness, increased risk for falls, a delay in wound healing, and even sometimes there's a delay in treatment just depending on um, the significance of the weight loss and how your body's responding to that. Chemotherapy and radiation are sometimes can be very aggressive um, in the sense that you can have side effects that you've never experienced before and can really impact how you feel and how you're tolerating your diet. And so um, the ultimate goal is to maintain your weight um, and to keep yourself nourished and hydrated. So... A few things to remember. Um, if you're struggling with intake, 
keep track of the things that you're having the most difficulty with. Um, talk with your team about that. Bring it to your doctor and your dietitian. Um, some things can be easily modified. Suggestions for making it a little bit easier to eat those things um, can be brought to your attention and, and to help um, modify those components can really improve quality of life. We briefly heard just um, a little bit about a feeding tube, and this is something that is not as common, um, but occasionally patients do have to have it. And I always tell patients, don't fear the feeding tube. It's part of your treatment plan, just like your chemotherapy, just like your radiation. It's just part of that plan to keep you in an optimal condition as possible and to help you tolerate the treatment as best as possible. Now, medications, um, when your doctor prescribes you medications, please take them as directed. A lot of times, side effects from treatments and other medications can, um, can be there. And even though you feel okay one moment, you know, taking that medication as directed can really help with any potential side effects that can come later down the road. And so if some changes happen, if you start figuring, uh, feeling some different side effects, please bring that to your healthcare team. Um, keeping a record of when you're experiencing them and, and how, what's going on around that time can help us help you better. Hydration is often something that is overlooked in conversations. We focus so much on eating that sometimes drinking is kind of left in the dust. And hydration is essential. Um, Certain treatments like radiation can cause an increased need for fluid um, because it can be very drying to your system. And dehydration can actually increase some of the side effects, like nausea, fatigue, can even make you feel very dizzy and lightheaded. And um, remembering that fluid is anything that is liquid at room temperature. This includes water, milk, sports drinks. In general, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. So that's about 64 to 80 ounces. Um, and again, that's really important to keep in mind. Talking with your healthcare team about how you're tolerating fluids, how much you're drinking a day is also very important. So in closing, there are several members of your healthcare team. All of us are dedicated to you and making sure that your healthcare journey through your treatment um, is as optimal as possible and as comfortable as possible. Please reach out to them. Reach out to us. We want to know sooner rather than later. So with that, I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn, and thank you so much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that was wonderful, Ms. Durden. It was a very comprehensive presentation. I know there are always questions for you about um, about eating, so I know that there will be questions for you about diet, and, and uh, so thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker um, is um, Mr. Hans Rufert, and Mr. Rufert is a board member and gastric cancer survivor of the Gastric Cancer Foundation. And as I mentioned earlier, we are partnering with the Gastric Cancer Foundation, um, and this is a very important partnership, um, and uh, we uh, hope to continue partnering with them for all of our gastric cancer programs. And Mr. Rufit will be addressing the Gastric Cancer Foundation's free programs and services. And it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Rufit. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And I have to say, as a survivor and patient myself, how amazing it is that we're even having this conference. Um, so just kudos to everybody to put this thing together. I, um, 15 years ago when I was diagnosed, this was a rarity. And so the fact that we have this many people having this conversation to me uh, it is not lost on the to me that this is really an amazing thing. So uh, thank you, everybody, for being here and uh, for taking time to, to make this happen. Um, as uh, Kellen mentioned, uh, I am with the Gastric Cancer Foundation and have been for over a decade now. And um, I wanted to talk about some of the services we offer. But most importantly, we fund research. So on the greater picture, uh, we've granted about $3 million in our first decade of grant making. And that is the key to future advances, right? The research is where, where we find what works and what doesn't work, as, uh, as Dr. Sambal was, was talking about. So that is our, our main thrust as a foundation towards the future of this disease, is promoting the research that will help eradicate um, this, this, you know, this great threat. So, but on the patient level, which is where I know a lot of you are coming from, myself included, um, we have a number of resources, and what we tried to be from the beginning is to be that 
kind of hub, right? So when you were first diagnosed, you have all these questions. We wanted to be that landing spot, that sort of safe place where you could land. So at gastriccancer.org, uh, we have this hub of information and links, uh, and it's a safe online community that really is exclusively for patients and caregivers. So it's a safe environment where you can ask questions, you can share information and experiences with people that understand the disease firsthand. And I think that's important, too, because oftentimes you feel like you're alone on this journey. But when you connect with a, with a greater community, uh, it, it really is comforting in this sort of storm of uncertainty to know that there are others that have been there before you. Um, just as a personal aside, it was actually um, I had a mentor that was a 10-year survivor when I was diagnosed that really became my lighthouse knowing that there is, you know, pun intended, light at the end of the tunnel here uh, and something to aim toward. So many times you hear uh, the diagnosis and people think about the finality of it rather than the hope. And so we try to be that, uh, that safe landing place uh, for folks. Uh, we also offer a free clinical trials navigator. So if you are at a point where your doctors are trying to decide what your next path is, there is a, um, a clinical trials navigator on the website at gastrocancer.org that helps you kind of understand this complicated array of studies and then be prepared to discuss those options with your care team. So uh, it's just a great resource when you're in that sort of confusing stage of what is my next step forward. And then last but not least, uh, this is sort of my, my little corner of, uh, of the Gastric Cancer Foundation, is a nutrition support series that I do called the Gesundheit Kitchen. Uh, which is near and dear to my gut um, in that I was a chef or still am a chef, but prior to uh, to being uh, to joining this exclusive club, I uh, spent the time in kitchens feeding people, and I, I quickly learned that my entire engine had been sort of uh, rearranged, right? And so it was with the help of a nutritionist like, um, like Dana Bearden that helped me understand that nutrition is a massive component of, of uh, surviving, right, and this sort of long term of fueling this new machine that you have uh, after diagnosis. So we do a series of videos, again, called the Gesundheit Kitchen. It's right there on gastriccancer.org. Uh, in fact, I'm shooting some more episodes tomorrow, and so it's, um, it's a resource that's meant to be for anybody that's looking for, you know, how do I eat, what should I eat, uh, where we we have a dietitian on the program as well, talking about sort of the mechanics, but also not losing that celebratory function of food, right? It's it's not just about the fuel; it's about uh, who's across the table, the time that you take to uh, to make a little bit of a uh, ceremony of food, right? Because it's an important part of who we are as humans. Uh, but the most important thing, again, as I mentioned before, is that no one needs to face this diagnosis alone. So at the Gastric Cancer Foundation, we want to be that place, that sort of community. Uh, for caregivers and patients alike to know that there is hope uh, and to be that safe landing space. Um, so that's something I'm proud of and continue to, will continue to do as, as long as I have the, the strength to do it. And I really appreciate being invited to this conference. I think it was uh, an amazing resource for, uh, for patients. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Rufort. And I also loved your just the wonderful terms you used in terms of just a landing uh, place and a lighthouse. And these words are so important to people to hear. So, um, and thank you for the Gastric Cancer Foundation. I'm remarkable. The research funding that you do, the Gesundheit Kitchen you have, uh, the clinical trial help. It's 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 remarkable. And so, thank you, thank you so much. And actually, we will have. Um, um, when you uh, after this program today, you'll all be getting a, a Survey Monkey evaluation of the program. But we also include any um, website or link or anything that anyone gave, and we'll also add some others as well, so that you all have uh, some additional information when you get that Survey Monkey as well. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and. I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care. Um, uh, um, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Director of Education here at Cancer Care. And um, cancer care is, the services of cancer care are primarily offered by oncology social workers, um, about 35 of them. Cancer Care is, was founded in about 1944, so it's 77 years old. And we offer a, a range of comprehensive services. And so what do those include? So we do have a hope line that you can call um, our hope line um, and speak with one of our oncology social workers for support, for information. Um, and um, so that's a wonderful resource for all of you. In addition, we also have um, 
resources for you in terms of both practical and financial assistance and copay assistance as well. So that's important to all of you, particularly at this at this time, but those services have been around for a long time, even before the pandemic. Um, we have specific services to help with that as well. Um, and um, we also have a, a case management staff who will help with your getting resources perhaps in your community, perhaps, or just helping you to find um, a resource that you may need that you that and we will link you to it. We're not going to just give you a list of resources. We're going to actually our staff will actually work with you to be sure that you're connected to that resource and get the need get your needs met, or else we will find another resource for you. So there'll be that kind of fo constant follow up with you. Um, in addition, we also offer online support groups. And we offer, of course, support. And we do offer these education workshops, about 75 of these a year. And they are also available once the program happens. Um, it is recorded, and it is available on replay um, as a podcast on our website. Um, and in addition to that, um, we also have a number of publications. That just gives you a thumbnail sketch of this, the services that we offer at Cancer Care. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, I just want to um, ask you just a few more questions, and then we're going to move right on to the Q&A. Okay, so I'm going to um, uh, start with our um, with our, um, our our next question for all of you. And again, if those of you live streaming, if you could just um, rate these questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater knowledge of new treatment approaches and the role of targeted treatment for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I feel more confident about precision medicine predicting response to the treatment of gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage gastric cancer treatment side effects, symptoms, and pain in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I have greater confidence in the standard of care, including chemotherapy for gastric cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. Again, it helps us to understand what you knew coming into the program and now what you've learned. It really helps us to improve these programs going forward. And now um, we're going to take, um, we're going to, I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board and we're going to have a chance for you to ask questions of our speakers. So um, Michelle, if you could explain to our participants how to queue up for questions and we're going to try to take as many of their questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. So, um, so um, this is a question actually for both Dr. Ku and Dr. Sonbal. 
um, uh, from one of our participants, an online question, which clinical trials excite you and show the most promise? So, um, Dr. Koo, do you want to go first with that one? Gosh, that's a really broad question. Um, I, I, but I think I would say that I think the two areas that are, are the most exciting are the new treatments for HER2-positive cancers. So, again, trastuzumab is a drug that's been approved uh, for a little bit more than a decade. Uh, and I mentioned that a couple of months ago. Uh, a drug that's a somewhat similar drug called trastuzumab, the Ruxtecan, was approved for cancers that, that previously have been treated with trastuzumab and chemotherapy but have grown uh, but there really are a whole string of other um, uh, new uh, treatments against her too that are that, that that are showing promise. One particularly promising approach um, is based on a study that was uh, conducted by my colleague here at Memorial, where we combined trastuzumab with immunotherapy with chemotherapy. Um, the 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 activity that we saw in that clinical study was uh, was actually pretty mind-boggling, and and that actually has led to a large um, what we call a phase three study. So a phase three study is meant to confirm these findings, um, and, and if the results indeed are true, then in the next couple of years, um, even for HER2-positive cancers, we would have trastuzumab immunotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, the other clinical study that I think is interesting is, so um, uh, there have been studies that have looked at immunotherapy medications um, with, um, with oral medications that we think also work by helping to block blood vessels, a little bit like the remisirumab we talked about earlier on, but this is an oral version. So that combination of immunotherapy plus the oral medication seems to be very active. Um, and now these two medications are also being combined with chemotherapy. Um, so I think, you know, there are actually, thankfully, a lot of um, exciting approaches and exciting studies. Um, these are two I would cite um, off the top of my head just because they, they really seem to hold a lot of promise. And potentially in the next couple of years, you know, can really kind of further improve outcomes uh, for our patients by a little bit. Excellent. And Dr. Sanbal, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with uh, the studies that Dr. Koo mentioned. I mean, they're exciting. Um, I think there are, there are many uh, aspects that are exciting right now in, in gastric or gastroesophageal junction cancer um, in terms of uh, whether to kind of build on what we know. So, for example, now we know from what you heard from Dr. Ku, we know that, uh, you know, last fall we learned that combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy is uh, is better than chemotherapy alone in some uh, some patients with, with gastric cancer. But then the question now is, how can we improve this even further and how we can expand it to all patients with gastric cancer? So there are uh, many modalities right now is trying to, kind of combine chemotherapy with immunotherapy plus uh, a new targeted agents or, or other uh, medications that work on the blood vessels or, or other modalities. So I think to me, whatever we can to maximize, whatever we can uh, kind of work on to maximize what we know of that works uh, would, be, would be great. Like, uh, as I mentioned, we know that Chemo plus immunotherapy is good. Now we want to know if there is something we can add to enhance that uh, and uh, activity and, and make it even work better for, for our patients. And there are many uh, studies uh, that kind of uh, ask in such questions. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Ms. Bearden, a question for you um, uh, from a participant who's, and this is a uh, individual questions, so if you could maybe answer in a general way. I'm on a soft hydration restriction of 32 ounces per day to control ascites. Do you have experience with patients on restriction? Are there things I should look out for with restriction? Yeah, um, absolutely. So when you're on a fluid restriction for ascites, you definitely just need to work very closely with your healthcare team. Um, a lot of things can influence um, kind of what's going on, but they may be talking with you a little bit about fluid intake, of course, limiting that. It sounds like that's already been covered. Potentially sodium intake, um, maybe another component of that. Um, so, yes, this is this is something that does happen with patients at times and occasionally, but, um, again, this is a pretty um, specific um, uh, kind of, you know, concern that's happening and it's a little bit more challenging to, to, other than just very generally, I would say just 
communicating with your healthcare team. But yes, this is something that can happen when um, a patient is having ascites to monitor fluid and potentially sodium intake, just depending on the circumstances. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and question um, for uh, Dr. Ku, is there a role for precision XRT for liver metastases? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't have a I don't have a good answer in the sense that the um, so an area that that I think we're all beginning to look at it's what's called oligometastatic disease, which means that for someone that has metastatic stomach cancer, but it's really only in one or two spots, or maybe you know three or four spots, but maybe only in the liver and some lymph nodes. So historically, um, as a group, so meaning chemotherapy doctors, surgeons, radiation oncologists, we've generally been very reluctant. To do anything except give you know chemotherapy and some and now some of the newer treatments, uh, but over the last couple of years I think you know there's been a, people have revisited that and and now I think there's absolutely interest in 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 looking to see whether for people who only have one or two spots some combination of chemotherapy surgery radiation and some other techniques you know such as ablation where we can even burn the the tumors with different kinds of energies are appropriate. I would say that for now, this is really purely an investigational question. And in fact, um, in the U.S., there is a study um, that's looking at this question. It's a study where people initially receive um, chemotherapy for gastric cancer that's only spread to the liver. And then uh, after a couple of months, if things seem to be responding well, patients are um, offered the option of radiation um, or continuing with the chemotherapy. It is a randomization, which means uh, a computer kind of flips a coin and, and, and makes that assignment. But uh, but it's something, I mean, it's kind of a cutting-edge question that we're looking at. Um, for now, you know, it's, it's really not clear uh, whether doing something else other than chemotherapy um, um, or immunotherapy, um, you know, other than these systemic treatments is helpful, um, but it's, it's certainly a, an important research question. Excellent. Um, and... Um... And a question for uh, Dr. Sonball. What ejection fraction is too low to continue Herceptin? If you could say a little bit about that question. Maybe everyone. Yeah, I, I think it, it, all, it all depends on uh, kind of, I mean, usually we want a normal ejection fraction for, for starting uh, trastuzumab. Uh, but also we look at the baseline and the comparison as well. And there are multiple guidelines regarding as what is a kind of a high drop. Some, some people consider 15% or 20% is a high drop. So, for example, if a patient was 60% and went down to 40%, that's a significant drop. So I think it's really mainly case by case. Um, there are multiple guidelines, as I mentioned, but it all depends on uh, the baseline and it depends on for how long has the patient been on it, what other medication patient was exposed to, and uh, multiple factors in there. And if, if they have, if this is the only thing that's contributing or there is something else going on, that's always important, I think, if we see a drop in the ejection fraction. Uh, and just to, to mention for people who don't, I mean, the, the way we assess when we do an echocardiogram, we assess how the heart is pumping. Uh, usually the cardiologist or, or the, the radiologist, they give us a number, which is called the ejection fraction, which tells us how much uh, the heart is, is, is pumping. Uh, so normally it should be a, a number above 55% for most people. I mean, there are variations. But uh, so it's, it's important if we see a drop on trastuzumab and the ejection fraction to kind of consider if, if this is only because of trastuzumab or there is something else. By something else, I mean, is there any angina or a coronary artery disease, a heart attack or something like, like that kind of contributing. And I, I think whenever we have such patients, we always try to engage our colleagues uh, with, in, in most uh, tertiary cancer centers that there are now subspecialty called, a subspecialty called cardio-oncology. So those are a group of cardiologists who have specific interest in, in, in patients who are on chemo or patients with cancer. So they always kind of get on board and give us some input regarding the patient. 
Excellent. Thank you. Wow, this has been amazing. I have to say our participants have been remarkable, and I want to thank our speakers as well. And I, as we conclude, I'd like our, each of our speakers to actually give you each a takeaway from today's program. So I'll start with Dr. Koo. Yeah, I, I think the takeaway, I think, is I think the general consensus that, you know, we've made slight improvements, um, you know, over the last five or ten years. But I think, you know, we all agree that there's a lot more room to go. Uh, and I think participation in clinical studies is, is really critical. Um, I think telemedicine is really, I think, a new tool that, that can be really very helpful. Uh, but I think, you know, as Dr. Thumbon indicated, uh, and there also are drawbacks um, to its use that, that we all have to be mindful of. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Dr. Sanbal? I, uh, I think communication. I think I, I, I always emphasize on that. You know, remember, you know, we're we're here to help you. Your your doctors and nurses, they're all with the team, other team members. Every one of them is very important, and they're all with the main goal of 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 really helping you. So, it's important if you have any concern, whether physical or emotional concerns, to try to voice that to to your team members so that they can act on it and and try to help you with this journey. Uh, to kind of uh, maximize the benefit of any treatment and maximize the care that you're receiving. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Ms. Bearden? Um, just echoing um, the importance of communicating with your team. Um, you know, like I said, although we know many of the side effects that can come along with the treatment, everybody's level of response to treatment, the, the level of response to the side effects it varies from individual to individual. And so if there's something going on and it, we don't ask about it in the visit or it wasn't brought up, um, please bring it up. You know, bring notes, um, document experiences that you're having. If you have someone who can help remember for you, because sometimes with treatment, you know, memory is not always the best. You're not resting as well. Um, that's always so helpful to have that, you know, second set of ears and eyes that can, um, you know, be your voice in times when you're just not filling up to it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And Mr. Rufert? Well, the word journey just came up by Dr. Sombal, and that's what I wanted to say. No matter where you are on this journey, it is a journey. So sometimes it's overwhelming and you think, oh, my God, I have to climb all the way to the top of this mountain. I have to finish all of this chemotherapy or all of this radiation or all of these surgeries. But if you attack it the same way you eat an elephant, one bite at a time, or the same way you climb a mountain one step at a time, it is an achievable journey. So keep that in mind as you go through this. It can, it's a lot of information. It can be overwhelming, but do it one step at a time, one day at a time, one treatment at a time, one bite at a time, and you'll get there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mr. Fitt. That's really, that's, that's very helpful. Um, now, I, um, I want to thank again all of you. Um, and I have to say that questions on today's program um, from our participants were really, uh, really remarkable and they really helped to, um, to expand the, our, our discussion today. So that was really wonderful. And I know there are many more questions in queue, so I, I want to address that. For those of you who asked a question, or for those of you who still have a question to ask, either way, we want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and share with them what you've learned, share with them your questions that you asked or that you didn't get to ask, and see what they have to say, because that's really very important, That uh, because they know you the best, of course, um, and so they can... In they can help to uh, tailor what you're learning to what you what what's best what makes sense in terms of your treatment. Um, in addition, um, we we want you to know that there are resources for you. The Gastric Cancer Foundation is just a wonderful resource. Cancer Care. There are many uh, uh, nonprofit cancer organizations out there, but I think the Gastric Cancer Foundation is specific to gastric cancer. So. Clearly, that would be a place to turn to for very specific information that you might be looking for. Um, and, of course, your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep your healthcare team as well. And I want to thank you all for your participation today, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day. <laughs>